Welcome to episode five of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with therapist, uh, eating disorder therapist, uh, Harriet Fru. She's going to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her. So Harriet, over to you. Yeah, hi there, Ross. Yeah, I'm, I'm Harriet Fru. I'm an eating disorder therapist I'm based in the UK. And um, yeah, I've been working with people with eating disorders for a very long time. <laughs> um, yeah, and initially sort of came to work in this field from my own experience of having bulimia, my late teens and early 20s. Um, but yeah, I recovered in my mid-20s and I've been sort of, you know, working in the field ever since. So um, I remain very sort of passionate about um, spreading positive recovery messages and giving hope you know to this very day brilliant yeah that's um great to hear that people can can recover um you see it all the time but sometimes i think we forget it or we get caught up in the challenges we're facing ourselves um so can you just tell us a little bit about your background in psychology um and what you currently do uh in psychology as it relates to nutrition and and working with people with disordered eating sure so I mean, I actually work um, part-time in an adult eating disorder service um, in the National Health Service in the UK. And then I work also part-time for myself as well. So yeah, my background is in counselling. I trained as a counsellor in my 20s. Um, I also did train in nutrition. Actually, I've got a master's in nutrition. But um, really with eating disorders, um, it is much more psychological. You know, food is the presenting issue, but really it could be a number of other presenting issues. Um, so though the food part is important, it's really more what's beneath the surface. So yeah, so I've worked, um, so I trained as a counsellor and then I've kind of done, you know, a lot of, lot more extra sort of training on the job and, um, and, and worked, I've worked sort of on and off in um, eating disorders, national health services since about 2003. So I've gained a lot of experience just through kind of observing my peers, learning on the job, you know, having access to great supervision and and all of that really so um yeah and it's an ongoing journey because I guess there's more and more development coming out in relation to eating disorders and um yeah always learning brilliant yeah you kind of have to keep uh, on top of the research and wow you really have a wealth of experience um so uh with the uh the psychology of of the nutrition is someone's behavior it's kind of like very far removed from what's actually going on so is it like uh when you see someone show disordered eating or just kind of irregular eating patterns is that more like the symptom of what they're thinking as opposed to that's not the actual problem would that be fair to say yeah I mean I think it all gets quite complicated because I think if you're experiencing disordered eating in that moment it very much feels like it is all about the food um but often you know like I often say in eating disorders it's not about food it's about feelings um and I guess usually someone has probably decided to diet or maybe focus on changing their body because of there's been a stressor or something's happened in their life. And um, I guess in the kind of culture we live in, it can feel very seductive, really, to like, if you want to feel better, your self-worth's not great. Well, if you kind of change your body, change what you eat, control your eating, you're going to feel good. And I guess in the short term, often that does give people those kind of benefits. You know, they get kind of boosted self-esteem, they might get compliments from other people, but it can quite quickly then, I guess, get into a more disordered zone um so so yeah so it's, it's a tricky one really because I think when you're actually experiencing the eating disorder you will be preoccupied with food you'll be thinking about your body and if someone said is it about other things you might be a bit confused you might need to have a bit of support in exploring that so it's kind of about both really but I guess the deeper stuff is there underneath 
as the kind of trigger really even if someone's not conscious of it yeah so kind of speaking of a trigger so even if someone isn't diagnosed with an eating disorder or if they are would it be fair to say that they're never going to be truly kind of like free from disordered eating patterns or um it's something that you could always be triggered to kind of exhibit like if you had a really stressful time or just because you have no stress in your life and you're eating uh regularly we'll say whatever regularly is then um it doesn't mean that you're immune to having kind of irregular eating patterns i mean i think you could always have a vulnerability but i mean i i suppose i speak for like for my own experience like i can safely say now like i have a very healthy relationship with food and um i guess stresses in my life haven't stopped in the last you know 15 years or whatever and um i safely say that i wouldn't go back to using bulimia as a coping strategy and um, I can really say that hand on heart um but I guess as well it depends on you know what kind of support and treatment that you've had because I think some people kind of make a partial recovery but they're still quite limited by a lot of food rules and you know they still perhaps can't eat socially or be really relaxed whereas I guess if you really make a full recovery um as well as being much more relaxed around your eating you probably like really worked on your self-worth you've worked at how you express your emotions and that whole kind of wider picture really and and I guess more stepped into a more healthy identity where you're not so defined by how you look or what you're eating um, and more aligned with your values your core values and then I think that's when you can really step into a, a you know properly healthily recovered place and you're much less likely then to relapse um you know because I think if you, you know, if you're, if you've got good coping strategies for dealing with your emotions, if your identity is not all about how you look, or what you're eating, you've got like a much more robust foundation then to deal with other stresses in life and um, rather than resorting back to the old coping strategy. Yeah. So developing new coping strategies, that's essential. Um, so it's kind of, I guess the question came from like my inexperience where I was kind of assuming that people would always relapse, but uh, you can answer this. So it's like, someone can be you know almost perfectly like or 100% cured of disordered eating if they had a history of it is that possible yeah i think it is it it's absolutely possible i mean i think it, you know but it's it's an individual thing like i think say for someone maybe that developed an eating disorder at the age of 10 or something and they had a lot of trauma and you know really difficult relationship with food from very young um it might be a bit harder to completely recover. And I'm not saying that's not possible because I think every case is individual and we have to really hold on to hope. And particularly, even if someone's 10 and they get early intervention, um, they're much, you know, quite likely to be able to recover. But I suppose I'm particularly thinking perhaps, you know, back in the day when people didn't really get the treatment they needed and they developed eating disorders very young. And then maybe now they're like in their 50s or 60s or something. They never really had good treatment early then they are probably much more, you know, much more higher risk, I guess, to be living with an eating disorder forever. Um, but it really depends on the individual. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, again, I'm speaking from personal experience and other people that I have worked with, it is genuinely possible to make a completely full recovery. Um, and I think, I think the sort of stats show something like a third of people will absolutely fully recover. Um, a third of people will partially recover. And some people will have to like live with the illness. So, um, but I think as well, that's probably based a bit as well on the old data. You know, I think nowadays early intervention is coming more in for eating disorders. So I would hope that's going to change, um, you know, as we move forward. Brilliant. Yeah. So 
it's like a lot of things, the earlier you can treat it or the earlier you can diagnose it and treat it, the, the more chance you have of, of getting past it. Um, so let's say somebody's listening and they, they know they have a kind of unhealthy relationship with food or maybe they don't. Like, what are some things to look out for to be like, you know, you might need to look into your relationship with food more. You might need to kind of think about it and reflect on it a bit more. Yeah, well, I suppose if, um, you know, if you're starting to be like really preoccupied with food a lot, you know, if it's starting to interfere with your day. So maybe you're thinking like, oh, I don't want to go to that social event because of I've got to go to the gym or I'm worried about what I'm going to eat. You know, if you start withdrawing from your friends, if you find that kind of, you know, controlling your food, doing exercise, maybe other disordered eating patterns are kind of coming in and taking over from other things in your life that you see more important. Um, I think as well, if people are restricting their eating, they'll often feel like kind of cold, have poor concentration, have really low energy, not able to engage in things. And they can start to be a lot of anxiety just about kind of doing things that they would have been able to do very normally before without much worry. So I guess it's starting to notice those things, really, you know, if you're starting to realize that it's sort of um, encroaching on your life in an unhealthy way. Um, so you're not able to do the things that you used to enjoy. So it kind of sounds like someone's overly inhibited, kind of like uh, I always struggle to try and define the, the term neurotic, but it sounds like neurotic kind of behavior. Is that right? Yeah, no, I think definitely there could be a neurotic element to it, you know, because I think like when you're getting up in the morning, you're not just kind of getting up and getting on with your day. You're thinking, oh, how much do I weigh? Or am I going to fit in all my steps? Or am I going to weigh my food? What am I going to eat? You know, how am I going to avoid that situation? So there's kind of constant preoccupation about eating and not eating and how you're going to sort of make all that work. You know, it's like a whole nother layer of stuff you've got to process every day. Yeah, as opposed to like getting after your kind of responsibilities, your typical responsibilities, you have this extra layer of kind of, I've heard the term before. It's like uh, you kind of take your health to the extreme and uh, you're kind of like, instead of pursuing health for the sake of being healthy, you're pursuing health for the goal of, you know, just pursuing these particular tasks because you think those are what make you healthy when in actual fact they're, they're causing you more stress. Yeah, that's sounds like a really stressful position to be in, really, like getting up in the morning and thinking, you know, if I don't get enough activity and I won't have a quote unquote successful day. Yeah, and I think really, really stressful, um, you know, and I think, yeah, people get really caught because they almost feel like they might get up in the morning and just feel so weary at the thought of having to deal with all of this in a day, but at the same time just feel so anxious about not doing those things. They kind of can't win. Um, quite a trap. Yeah, a horrible situation to be in, so definitely some good points to look out for there. Um, then in terms of coping strategies, so what are some healthier coping strategies or a way you can you can uh kind of foster those because i know just recently i've really learned about how important they are for you know uh anyone in any any walk of life really so but i think with eating disorders like what's really helpful just to even start with is like before you even get onto the coping strategies is like just trying to get a bit of an understanding of why you're using the eating disorder as a coping strategy so like Obviously, that can be done in therapy, but even just sitting down and journaling, really, and starting to think about, like, what's happened, what stresses have you experienced, starting to almost, like, put the pieces of the jigsaw together to make sense for yourself. Um, and then also, as well, what's really important is motivation, because I guess people with eating disorders are often really ambivalent about change. And, you know, they're sort of parted and they come to therapy and they'll think, you know, part of me really wants to get well, part of me doesn't want to give this up because it's helping me cope in some way. But 
once you start to realize that, like, what am I really gaining from this? What am I really losing from this? It starts to help shift your motivation and you can work with the ambivalence because of once you've almost got your cards on the table and you realize, okay, it's helping me cope in these ways, it at least opens the door to thinking, actually, perhaps I don't really want to cope like this. You know, there might be other ways of doing it. Um, so, you know, a lot of that work is quite the sort of preliminary work is helpful before you even start therapy. Um, and then I guess in terms of like helpful coping strategies, um, things like kind of starting to do regular eating, you know, if you're underweight, beginning to like do some weight restoration, and that can be done with like um, a nutritionist or a dietitian. So you can do that in quite a kind of slow and managed way. Um, and then there's, a kind of, I guess, a whole plethora of kind of coping strategies. So, you know, like helping you work on your emotions. Um, you know, often people with eating disorders are completely disconnected from their emotions, disconnected from their body. And they're kind of spinning on this hamster wheel, whether it be through restriction or um, compulsive eating, you know, they're not really engaging with how they feel. So helping them start to like name their emotions, be in touch with their emotions, you know, kind of develop all those skills and then deal with their emotions in healthier ways rather than trying to avoid them by restriction or eating you know, um, so, and, and I guess in, in a lot of the things, it's like just learning to like talk to people and share things and um, things in a way that can feel quite simple and obvious, but, you know, obviously when you're not using those strategies or perhaps when you've been quite hurt or something in the past or bullied, you can feel really, really scared about being vulnerable. So it can take some, you know, courage and baby steps to start doing coping in different ways. Um, other things are like working on self-compassion, you know, more and more research comes out to show how beneficial self-compassion is. Anyone with an eating disorder or mental health problems generally, usually really, really hard on themselves. Um, and self-compassion is much more about like, you know, treating yourself much more kindly um, as you would a friend and, and even beginning to realize that you deserve to treat yourself kindly because people often have quite a lot of resistance to that. Um, and then things as well, like working on body image, you know, when you have an eating disorder, so much of your self-worth has become sort of almost disproportionately linked to what you're eating and how you look. Um, and it's starting to sort of untangle that really, because of I guess most people on the deathbed and they're, when they're looking back, they're not going to think, oh yeah, I wish I was this many stone or kilograms or, you know, or I wish I had a thigh gap or I, you know, I lost so much weight. They're going to be thinking, oh, my relationships, my hobbies, what I contributed to the world. And there's helping people as well start to like step more into a different identity as well and um, separate from the eating disorder. Um, and then that's much more motivational for change as well. Because when you're starting to think about the next meal or addressing your steps in the day, that can feel like, what's it all for? But if you've got like a bigger vision and you know where you're going and you're much more in line with your values, then that's really much more motivational for change. Um, so that's just a kind of taster. I mean, I guess there's quite a lot more that goes on in therapy, but that gives you a bit of a taster. That's far more than a taste. That's an amazing overview. Um, that's kind of inspirational in the sense that there's so many different things you can do to kind of overcome uh, an ineffective coping strategy. So like journaling, would you just speak a little bit about that? Because I like to journal a lot. I think it's really effective, but I find as though people either are like, really you know into their journaling they're like oh yeah i do it regularly or they're just like it doesn't work for me i don't do it at all i'm not open to it how would you kind of uh sell what would be your pitch for someone who doesn't journal how would you pitch it to them <laughs> like as i say first like get yourself like a really nice journal <laughs> 
and Simple, a nice yeah. pen <laughs> you know so it's like yeah more motivational so like it's a night and then and, and then set a time to do it I guess so like start to set aside and a, a small amount of time and maybe don't set your goals too high think okay I'm just gonna like write for three minutes or something um I guess the different ways you can journal like you can like do what you call like free association where you literally just open the page and write whatever comes into your head um, and I think for some people that can be really helpful for some people if they're stuck in a really like negative critical place sometimes they might just pour out a load of like self-criticism on the page and then that can kind of get you in a bit of a negative loop so I guess things like kind of expressing gratitude and things like that you know just trying to find like a couple of things every day you can be grateful for because I think I know myself in a way when I'm in a place of feeling gratitude um, it completely shifts your mood and um it's hard to, you don't, you're not going to engage with the negative thoughts as much because it just really shifts your state into such a different place. So I guess as well, you can like, if you really struggle, you could get a journal that maybe has some prompts in it, like that ask some open questions. Um, you know, I don't know, there's probably like a whole intricate journal kind of like, I don't know, world out there that I'm not even completely aware of. But I, I said just say as well, just persist with it really. And don't try to be perfect. I think people sometimes worry that I've got to write something down that's kind of perfect or I've got to do a certain thing. But I think it's just like letting go of expectations, really, and just sort of trusting that you have some wisdom within you. And actually, you can access that when you start to write. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have anything to add being a journaler yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say it's like, if you just think of the, the most simple quote is like a problem shared is a problem halved, and you don't always have somebody around, especially because we're disconnected, you know, we're communicating through video calls. So you don't have someone to talk to uh, at the drop of a hat, but you can always, uh, you know, voice record something into your phone. You know, here's what I'm thinking and think out loud. Um, you can always grab a pen and paper, have it handy with you or use the laptop and just literally get the idea that's in your head like that you're ruminating on, get it out of your head, get it down onto the paper, see, you know, the holes in it, see the good points um, and iron out, you know, something you're thinking about, especially if you're thinking about it for a couple of days, because then if you're thinking about something for a couple of days, it, it definitely has meaning to you that you just haven't uncovered. I would say that's my experience of an idea mm -hmm. like that. And then yeah. you can really kind of pull out what is meaningful about it. And then maybe it might be something that you want to talk to somebody about, but you're kind of rehearsing it in advance. Um, and then it kind of just, it, it just shares the problem that you have, really. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. But um, if you have, as you say, the expectations are set too high, then, you know, the barrier to entry is high and you get into behavior change. You want to have low barriers to entry and yeah, uh, make it simple. Just, just get started, I would say. Get that fancy pen, get that fancy notepad, and yeah. uh, you're away with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, great advice. <laughs> um, so then you spoke about uh, kind of like body dissatisfaction or body image issues. Um, I think they're like a lot more common. Like even in myself, for example, I'm like, oh, I want to be healthy. I need to look a certain way. But then the side effect of that is you can do it excessively um, or you can set unrealistic expectations. Um, will you just talk a little bit like about how prevalent that is, um, in the general population and then how it ties in with like disordered eating patterns? 
Yeah, no, sure. So I think, yeah, body image is like a huge problem, isn't it? Just across the population. And I think particularly in our kind of Western world, it's so much linked as well to kind of self-esteem. Like there's been some research that shows like at least a third of your self-esteem or something is related to your body image. Um, so it, you know, it does have a huge impact. And I guess, you know, we do live in this kind of what I would call like kind of slightly diet culture world where certain bodies are really valued, aren't they? You know, if you're, if you're split, if you're female and you're, you know, you're smaller and you're thinner, you just generally kind of like um, admired, seen as having like better self-control. Um, it's almost seems to be morally superior almost. Um, and I guess the same as well, you know, for, for men as well, you know, you've, but you've got to be perhaps like really muscular, but like have a like small waist and like look a certain way. And, and I think the tricky thing is as well, the reality is, is the world does give a lot of praise and validation and um, assume in a way that if you look really good, that you are kind of more virtuous in a way that you're a better person. Um, and obviously that is really quite distorted. Um, you know I think you know I know myself and I'm sure you found in your work that um you know often people that can look physically like very lean very sort of defined etc often are really really struggling with their eating and there's huge costs to maintain that really um so I think it, it's really tricky because I think we do live in this kind of world with all these pressures so it takes quite a lot to be able to take a step back and think actually no I want to really value my health I want to like you know genuinely value my health I want to look after my body I want to kind of allow my body maybe to be more at its kind of natural weight rather than having to kind of sculpt it and do whatever um so so I think it is it is really 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 challenging but um I mean I think what helps most with body image is um just sort of stepping away from again like getting back to values and everything again because I think you know it's very easy day by day isn't it I think to kind of like if you're getting praise and validation for looking a certain way that can kind of feel quite addictive and it can feel you know like it can give you glimmers of self-worth but it doesn't really kind of fix the problem you know of making you feel kind of good enough um so and I guess again with your question I think with eating disorders obviously like body image negative body image goes to more of an extreme so I guess most people in the population might relate to having negative body image at times, maybe like wanting to change parts of their body. But I guess if you develop an eating disorder, you probably, you kind of lost sight of things in a way and you're probably prepared to, um, you know, suffer greater costs, you know, whether that be like, you know, purging maybe, taking laxatives, doing ridiculous amounts of exercise in the pursuit of what you perceive to be a better body image. Um, but obviously that's an extremely destructive path. Yeah, that's kind of the, yeah, the worst case scenario that hopefully not too many people experience. So then you're, you're talking a lot about value. So like, I'm reading a little bit about like self-determination theory, and I see that like values are a little bit of a part of that. And I'm learning more about them. But let's say someone has never really considered their own personal values. And they're like, you know, whatever, you know, 20, 30 years old, like, why is it important to have our own personal values, as opposed to like, oh, you know, my best friends tell me I look great, because I lost a bit of weight, or, um, you know, someone at work is saying, oh, you're doing brilliant or working so hard. Why is it important to have our own values as opposed to letting other people, you know, tell us what we should value? Oh, well, I think great question. I mean, I think when we are truly aligned with our values, I think that's when we experience the most joy and fulfillment in life. 
you know, because I think there's so much noise in the world, isn't there, about what you feel you should do, whether that be whatever job that is, or how you should look, what your parents think you should do, um, you know, massive amounts of noise, all the social media. Um, but I guess when you sort of come back in a way to thinking actually, what is it that like actually really excites me and interests me? Like, how do I want to contribute to the world? You know, what makes me like just really happy? Like, you know, what do I enjoy doing? My time just flies by and I'm just so in the flow of it. Um, I mean, that is the kind of step towards true fulfillment and happiness, um, you know, because like you can change your body. You know, I've heard it numerous times, you know, change your body like to look a certain way, but kind of get there and in a way you can just feel all the same things that you felt in your old body um sometimes you just feel even worse really because quite a sort of empty feeling realizing like because even if the whole world is saying to you wow you've got amazing abs I mean <laughs> it doesn't really fill you up <laughs> might give you a kind of a glimmer of self-esteem but there's also then all the pressure to maintain it isn't there and um feeling as well that oh my goodness people only really like me because of this conditional acceptance rather than really liking you for you. Um, so yeah, I hope that's answered the question. Waffled a bit there. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's great. Yeah, because um, let's say, for example, society is insecure about their health or you know their exercise habits or nutrition, and then people project onto you saying, "Oh, aren't you eating great? Or aren't you? They might do, do this. Or aren't you very active?" Um, but that's not coming from an internal source. So like when that uh, external gratification dries up it's like what are you left with you're left with this like hollow feeling you know you're left with your abs that you didn't really want that you worked really hard for but you never thought like why am I getting this lean for example or why am I putting all this effort into what I'm doing um which, which it makes me think about uh I'm just doing some running recently and I'm, I'm doing a lot more and I kind of frightened myself I was like am I doing this running for external gratification am I looking to try and just get applause from other people and then I was like no no you're not you actually enjoy having the variety of uh you know doing resistance training and running so um I guess the the main point for someone listening would be that you want to reflect on what you're doing and yeah. and think what it means to you you know you're not going to the gym because your friend told you you should it's like you actually genuinely want to do something yeah and no, absolutely and I think it's great isn't it it's a great example you gave there of just like pausing and just reflecting yourself because of I guess we can all be vulnerable can't we at certain points to getting a bit um led off down the external validation path because of um you know as human beings if someone praises you it gives you a little kind of boost doesn't it and it, you know it can be easy to get a bit seduced down that path sometimes and it could be taking you away from your values yeah 100 and not to go kind of off the deep end but like you can imagine a scenario where someone is like, you know, had a, a childhood with a little bit of trauma and like they get a little bit of um, praise, you know, the, the, oh, as an adult, you know, this is kind of new to them. And they're like, oh, this is I'm doing the right thing now. This is brilliant. You know, I've had a tough childhood, but I'm on a win. I'm on to a, a winner here with whatever I'm doing. And the reality is it's like, no, that's you know, that's just someone else's view of of what you're doing um, and your health and your nutrition and exercise habits. And you, you really need to you know, reflect. And that's actually where journaling is useful because you can, you yeah. can easily reflect with journaling where sometimes it's hard to think things through in full. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, like writing it down, I think is just really powerful, isn't it? I think it just really just helps you. Yeah. Make those connections much better. Yeah. Um, so then kind of connecting back to like the nutrition, how can someone 
improve their relationship with food? Um, what are some of the like, typical recommendations or, or tips you have? If someone is in doubt, they're like, oh, this food, I'm a bit uncomfortable when I eat it, or I eat a lot of this food, but I'm not really sure should I eat that much, you know? Oh, well, I think, I think just a lot of the really kind of like straightforward stuff, like, you know, like regular eating, like having a bit of an eating plan, you know, like that's going to improve your relationship with food, having some routine, having some sort of blood sugar stability, um, and, you know, and not about kind of like planning it all down to the detail or weighing it out or counting calories, but just, I think a lot of people get into a really unhealthy relationship with food because they go like really long periods without eating they get over hungry and then they tend to like kind of like binge on food and then feel out of control and then they restrict again. So it's not a very kind of sexy intervention, particularly, you know, but I think the good old regular eating and just having some sort of plan, you know, making sure you've got foods in the house that are that you can put something together. You know, it, it can just be quite simple. Um, so I think that's kind of like a baseline thing. And then it's really trying to help people move away from like having like good, good foods, bad foods, becoming much more kind of food neutral. Um, because again, like if you, um, you know, if you start to label some foods as bad, then when you eat them, you can often feel really guilty and anxious. And then paradoxically, then you can often go on and eat even more because then you're soothing yourself to try and feel better. Um, so it's trying to get into that much more food neutral place, really. So, so that food hasn't got that kind of seductive special appeal, you know, that like chocolate is just chocolate, really. It's not something that's a cheap thing or something that you can only have at the weekend or because that just makes it so much more compelling. And then, you know, human beings, we don't like rules. We value freedom. We like autonomy. So as soon as we feel controlled, we might be like the good boy or good girl for a bit, but then we tend to like really rebel against that. So it's just trying to get into that much more kind of neutral place, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was just reminded of the analogy that I use sometimes. It's like, you know, let's say, for example, cereal has been demonized, like, I don't know, Cocoa Pops or Cheerios or whatever, cornflakes. But it's like, let's just say, for example, you have, you know, you know, some of the uh, Tour de France cyclists, you know, in England is very successful recently. So like, they don't have that much time to eat. They need something, you know, very tasty. They might have a bowl of cereal after training and they're the most elite of the elite athletes. Does that make them a bad person or is this food bad? And it's like, no, that actually is very nourishing for them in the moment. So uh, it's very context dependent. I know, you know, that black and white thinking is so, you know, I do it myself sometimes. It's so toxic. Mm, I think it's just so sort of prevalent, isn't it, in our culture that, you know, people that even don't have eating disorders or disordered eating will still kind of say things like foods being good and bad or like, I've been good today or it's just so kind of normalized. So it's starting to like just take a step back, really, and notice some of those judgments and, you know, yeah, trying to move away from that. Yeah, thinking, thinking big picture. Um, something that I could pick up on what you're saying is flexibility as well. So just, you know, not having too many rules. Why is it important? Like, you know, imagine the scenario of somebody who has decided, okay, the pandemic's over, I'm looking to improve my health, you know, it hasn't been as, as, as good as my usual kind of standards. Um, should they not kind of implement a lot of structure and a lot of rules to their health um, now that they're trying to make a change? Sure, well, I think like some structure and, you know, some structure and routine can be helpful. You know, I think it, you know, particularly you're trying to address your eating, but I guess that's kind of different from having like rigid, you know, over control 
because um, I think the rigid over control as well, it tends to really sort of add fuel to the fire for that sort of abstinence violation effect. So, you know, if like someone feels like, right, I'm only allowed to eat, I don't know, one biscuit a day or something, and then they eat two, and then they just think, oh, well, I might as well, you know, throw in the towel and eat everything in sight now. Um, so it's really important. Like, it's just a balance, isn't it? Of like, you, you need some kind of structure but you also need it to be, yeah, again, flexible because of as a human being, we just don't like being stuck in a kind of prison of rules. You know, we can do it for so long, we're eventually going to break free and just fight against it. And then it puts you in war with your body. And that's just such an unhelpful place to be. Yeah. Re recently, I had a client who she was doing keto uh, in a previous plan for a year. And she's just like, I'm just fed up with it. I'm sick of it. You know, I, I just want to have, you know, a dessert sometimes and I can't and she felt restrained. So, yeah, we really I like that distinction. It's like we don't want rules. We want a routine and a schedule and then values as well. I guess you could all you could tie it all in together. Um, that sounds like a really effective approach to uh, to bounce back from the, the pandemic. Um, so just speaking of the pandemic, then like kind of what have you noticed in terms of like trends or changes to people's kind of uh, eating patterns um, and then in your own client work as well do you have like more or less clients because of the pandemic yeah I think you know rates of eating disorders and just problems with mental health have risen dramatically um, with the pandemic but I think as well particularly with eating issues I think there was quite a, a large proportion of the population that perhaps had slightly disordered eating but was sort of like teetering on the edge of it actually being a full-blown eating disorder but then when all the stress of the pandemic came, you know, with all the changes, all that anxiety, people being stuck at home, you know, all the different stresses, I guess everyone's stresses were slightly different, weren't they? But I think for many people then that kind of tipped them into a full-blown eating disorder, but they'd probably been skirting around the edges of it for a while, but had kind of almost probably kept it at bay by just like having distractions and you know probably some healthy kind of coping strategies but then that all kind of imploded a bit I think with the pandemic so yeah definitely rates of um disordered eating have been on the increase and um, through the pandemic yeah so then I guess if someone is struggling with their health their nutrition their exercise it's like it's kind of it's kind of normal but they, there is a lot as you all already mentioned uh there's a lot of things that people can do and you know uh, getting in contact with someone like you would be uh, a great a great change they can make um so how kind of how common is it roughly in terms of percentage like disordered eating in in the population do you know like the figures I don't I'd say know the what the, yeah i i um i think in terms of like referrals to services i think it's literally doubled at least and i'm not i'm not kind of absolutely sure of that off the top of my head but and, you know, I know in the NHS service that I've worked in, um, I think like back last October time, we were almost like had tripled the amount of referrals that we would normally be having. So it was a bit of an explosion, really. Um, particularly, I think after that, I think, you know, talk about the UK, we had the sort of first lockdown, it was over the summer, kind of a bit more, a bit more of a honeymoon. I mean, you know, and I'm not, not, um, not validating anyone's experience there. I'm not saying it's a honeymoon for everyone, but I think to start with we didn't really know how long it was going to go on for and everything and then we kind of went to winter and the lockdown and then and then things really sort of took off a lot then seeing a lot more referrals um yeah so yeah hasn't been hasn't been great um but I think 
you know, I know the service I work in now, referrals are back to a more normal level again at the moment, but I think there's still a lot of people out there struggling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're like, oh, you know, some places aren't actually open, like as in another client, uh, like uh, he was meant to do a, a fight and that fight's been cancelled because of COVID. So like he's obviously more stressed because of that. Um, let's say someone is ready to like make a change and they're, they're ready to get kind of healthier again. But they're like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, not as healthy as I was pre-pandemic. How can someone be more compassionate with themselves, given that they've had this big challenge of the pandemic? Because I find compassion is talked about a lot, but like how to you know, practically apply it, you know, the understanding people have of it is kind of limited, especially even myself. You know, I'd like I definitely think I could do better at being more compassionate with myself and others. Yeah, no, sure. I think it's a skill we could all improve on, really. But I guess it's just trying to see it, isn't it? Like in a way. Say, say if someone has had a more problematic relationship with food over the pandemic, it's because it's a coping strategy. It's because there's been more anxiety, because maybe they've lost loved ones, because of they've met, there's maybe so much transition. So I guess it's trying to view it a bit more from a psychological perspective so you can like offer yourself a bit more kindness. Because I think, you know, I just think even in the UK, the messages you get from the government are just like, oh yeah, you know, just eat a bit less and move a bit more and off you go. And then... <laughs> People just think, oh, well, I'm I'm really, you know, I'm really bad because I can't do that. You know, what's wrong with me? And then kind of get the stick out and become really, you know, uncompassionate and become really, really critical. So I guess it's trying to view it a, a bit from the psychological perspective, really. And in and thinking about, you know, if they'd heard a friend going through all these things that they've probably been through, they would probably again be so much more compassionate towards a friend than they would be to themselves. So I think that's often a way in as well to think, you know, what would I say to my like really close friend about this? Um, you know, and realizing in a way, actually I've got permission to do that for myself too. Um, and I think one thing I say to people as well is I think some people think, oh, if I'm really, if I'm self-compassionate, then that means I'm lazy and I'm, I'm not going to be motivated. And I would say to people as well, like imagine if you're like teaching a child um, to ride a bike, um, you know, if they fall off, you're like, Come on, get back on again. You can do it. You're really encouraging and warm and supportive. And you still want them to get that end goal of riding the bike, but you're doing it with like so much warmth and encouragement. And um, you know, I sort of think as well, that's a lot about what self-compassion is. You know, you're you're like your kind of cheerleader and encourager. So, you know, like if someone falls off the bike, you're not saying you're not being super critical because they never get back on again, would they? And I think that's often the way we are towards ourselves. So self-compassion isn't about just kind of like giving up on your goals and kind of like sitting on the sofa and never doing anything it's but it's just it's, you can still like be quite a high achiever still want to do lots of great things but it's much more just about how you approach it you know with your thoughts behaviors how you talk to yourself all of that yeah I think is the definition of compassion it's like being with uh suffering is that you know, I don't know what the absolute good, you know, uh, yeah, but pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I feel as though I've heard it before in like uh, meditation circles that uh, compassion is basically just being with the suffering you're feeling. So it's like, um, you know, that uh, the quote you hear, you know, eat less, move more. Well, you know, move more. What about the person who has an injury? Like, what do they do? <laughs> or what, the, what about the person with the, the eating disorder? How do they eat less? You know, they have an unhealthy relationship, so they can't they're kind of suffering as it is. Their suffering needs to be met with compassion. Um, and 
the the suggestion of how would you speak to a friend it's funny it, it it's like it takes time for the penny to drop i feel like i heard that probably hundreds of times and it's kind of like slowly but surely i'm trying to do it myself more and other people it's like you really have to be serious about the advice you hear and take it in and apply it you can't just be like oh that sounds like a good idea you have to kind of almost move yourself from the kind of would it be like the contemplation stage to like the the action stage of of behavior change you, you really have to like be serious about i guess how you can improve your habits and and yeah. take an action to improve those those habits that maybe you want to get rid of or you know implement uh, more in your life yeah no it's so true i think isn't it it's, it's almost like if you think about the number of thoughts you have a day, like it's 60,000 plus or something, and so many of them are repetitive. So it's going to take, you can't just like think, okay, I'm going to like do about 10 minutes self-compassion once a week. It's just going to have such a small impact, isn't it? It's almost got to become much more part of just your daily life. And of course, you've got to build up to that slowly, haven't you, with baby steps. But, um, you know, start to have quite a profound impact the more you become self-aware and the more you're able to, step in and talk to yourself in kinder ways but yeah it takes time doesn't it I mean I always think as well it's like building your emotional muscles you know like if you're going to the gym or something you know it it, it takes a while doesn't it to get fit and so um you know change your body if that's what you want to do and it's the same with your mind and your mental health it, it takes time and practice and repetition of habits absolutely yeah repetition so it's like you have to form a different routine and a different schedule that aligns more you know, based on your values aligns more with, you know, what you envisage yourself being. So it's like, uh, you have an eating disorder, you're trying to form a healthier coping strategy. So your, your schedule, maybe your daily, I'm not sure, you know, what you'd recommend, but like maybe your daily or weekly schedule has to have some element of a practice that is aligned with the person or the habit you're trying to form. So it could be just that compassion exercise of on a daily basis, you just stop and say, you know, am I talking to myself like I would talk to like my best friend or, or a loved one? That might be something you could implement straight away. Yeah, no, really true. And I think as well, sometimes I think, I'm sure some people like listening or watching this, they might just feel so far from that place. But as, as, as well, I think as well, if you're really stuck in a dark hole, that's where things like therapy can just be so helpful. Or even just starting to talk a bit more to a close and trusted friend who's like accepting and who can listen and who's really supportive um because sometimes when we're in our own heads it can just feel so hard to kind of like shift gears almost yeah 100 percent. i uh don't know where i heard this analogy but it was like uh if you were to get kind of stabbed for example i know it's a very extreme example but if you were to get stabbed right you wouldn't say oh sure i'll be grand i'll uh, i'll go to work in the morning i'll i'll patch it up myself I won't tell my partner. I won't tell the friends or coworkers. I'll, I'll, I got this. You know, this wound in me, it'll be fine. But mental health is kind of like that. We, we say, you know, for example, I know like I've been like depressed over the pandemic. I'm sure a lot of people have. And it's like, it's so bizarre, but it's like the last thing you want to do is open up to someone else. It feels so difficult, but that's the thing you need. You need to share whatever struggle you have. So like, I think eating disorders are a little bit different because there's like a lot of shame and guilt that can go with it because it's like, oh, we need food. I should be able to control my food. I've had it my whole life, but people, what, any idea why there's, is there more, do you think there's more shame and guilt attached to food than there is other things, other, other challenges? 
Yeah, no, I mean, possibly. I mean, I think I think it is. I mean, I think particularly as well, if you get into like binging, purging, that kind of thing. I mean, there's so much shame, isn't there? I think. Um, and yeah, people just feel as well, they should be able to kind of have more willpower and self-control and all those things. So, and I think it's really difficult because I think often family and friends don't always understand. And I mean, hopefully for some people that, you know, they have got supportive people around them. But I think sometimes people with good intentions can say quite unhelpful things um, just because they don't understand eating disorders. And then that can make someone feel even more ashamed and then withdraw further. So I guess it's quite important that when someone opens up, that they perhaps do really think a little bit about who they're going to talk to, um, you know, so they can feel safe to really share. Yeah, for sure. And something I've learned as well is like, just speaking with clients more and being more aware of that it's like you might think you know what someone's going through but like i realized i actually have no idea at all and um i'll never understand what they're going through because that's their like individual experience i might be able to just i think the best thing i kind of hope for is that I'll, I'll be a better listener for uh whatever kind of challenges they have so that then they just have a space to basically open up because you know, some people have really challenging experiences. You know, the pandemic has been a real test. And then the side effects when they don't get to open up are potential eating disorders. So it's like um, sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen, just just kind of shut up and just listen and hear someone out. Yeah, and no, I so agree. And I mean, I think I think we all relate to that, don't we? Like when you have a problem, actually, you don't really want someone to give you loads of advice or something. You just want someone just to listen and just kind of be empathetic and just be there for you that's the most helpful thing isn't it we don't really want it to be fixed or and often it can't be fixed just like that but just being heard is really really valuable yeah absolutely it kind of goes back to how we don't want to be controlled so the last thing we want is to go to somebody and, and they say okay you're going to do this and you're going to be here and then at this time you're going to do that it's like no I'm I'm my own individual I'm an adult you know I I yeah. value my autonomy I want to make my own choices in life and then you'll feel better about it when you make your own choices as well. So yeah, that's a really good advice actually to be careful of who you speak to when you do open up because um, it, it's, actually, it's actually far worse when you're ready to open up to somebody, uh, particularly about like an eating disorder where there might be more shame and guilt and then they throw it back in your face. That is like probably the worst mm -hmm. thing we could do to another person is, you know, here's your vulnerability and I'm going to make you feel bad about you being vulnerable when in actual fact it's like, probably the most you know like Brene Brown would say it's probably like it takes a lot of courage and bravery to be vulnerable with another person because they essentially know your your deepest kind of we'll say fears or needs and stuff you know mm, yeah no so true um but I guess I say to anyone as well like to if you do have a bad experience don't be put off you know, I suppose it's, you know, because I think it's still just so important to reach out. And um, and there are a, a lot of people out there in the world who are really compassionate and accepting and encouraging. And um, yeah, you just got to find them because um, there are a lot of people that will be really pleased to support and listen. Yeah, that's why we offer our service that we try and <laughs> we try and help <laughs> people. And uh, we'd like to think that we'll give, you know, uh, uh, good kind of listening skills to the, the the situation they're in but um there is lots of people out there as you said already there's lots of ways to, to kind of to cope um so just getting close to the end we'll kind of wrap up with like three quick fire questions so um what are some kind of like poor habits that you notice people typically have around eating that are like relatively easy to improve 
Um, well, so outside what we've talked about, so I guess the first thing I wanted to say was kind of like the regular eating, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd almost say like introducing forbidden foods, old forbidden foods in quite a structured way. That can be quite a good tip. So I think, you know, everyone's always harping on about don't say don't have good and bad foods, you know, introduce foods back in. But I think if you've had an eating disorder or disordered eating, you need to do that in really quite a structured way or you'll feel really overwhelmed. So what you might do is like, say, um, write down five foods you want to introduce, rank them, introduce the easiest one first. Um, and then other things you like, you know, as I always say to people as well, like if you've had a problem with eating, sit down at a table, you know, set a place, make it nice, try and eat without distractions. That's all really helpful as well because a lot of eating when you've had sort of eating is quite dissociated at the cupboard door, things like that. Um, and um, and just finding foods that you like again as well. I think people in their relationship with food often, you know, convince themselves they like certain things, but actually that's all about kind of diet culture and what they feel they should be eating. So getting back in touch with what you genuinely like, thinking about what you used to like as a child. Um, I think again, that's just really healthy because it's really important to derive pleasure from food and, and joy. And um, a lot of those foods as well might have really nice memories attached to them as well making food a pleasure again yeah so it's like it's kind of it's the simple advice but it's really hard to apply it's like eat a balanced diet so don't have the forbidden foods and i really like that advice of having five uh you know foods that you think are forbidden and then starting with the fifth one and then applying the structure there and then the foods you don't have as much of an issue with you probably could have less structure um just something yeah. i'm thinking about you know a quote-unquote forbidden food or you know drink so alcohol as in how does that tie into disordered eating is there any connection there or is it completely separate altogether yeah and I think it can often be tied up I mean I think people that are generally kind of more like restrictive eaters so more towards anorexia or just you know um they're probably like would be avoiding alcohol anyway because we're so worried about the calories but I think particularly with bulimia or binge eating um often you know alcohol can serve a similar function to almost kind of like escape you know sort of um you know get off the treadmill of life a bit soothe feelings you know all those kind of things so for some people alcohol might be quite tied up maybe with binging and it could make binging worse and kind of like again like blood sugar fluctuations as well kind of exacerbate all the symptoms really so I guess it's quite individual um I mean I think generally with eating disorders it's probably for most people the alcohol and the food are separate things but again you know it's definitely a proportion of people where alcohol is got a bit tied up in it too good to know yeah um okay so then the next one uh what are the most common challenges people have with food so like a very general general uh, general question so like i guess to make it more specific um like kind of recently over the pandemic what are like the challenges people are having that you see with your clients um well i guess like things like kind of hoarding food you know i think particularly in like the earlier stages of the pandemic where we had all these sort of food shortages and things, um, you know, there was no pasta on the shelves and I think, you know, scarcity for a human being, it really sort of triggers our primal need of feeling like we need to kind of like, yeah, hoard food, hoard things because of it, we feel really unsafe. So I think, was that, was that one thing you wanted or? Uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's a good one. So I kind of, food scarcity, I guess, would that be the, the, the topic there you're going into? 
yeah yeah no so so and, and I guess that's a kind of a problem just anyway anyone that tends to restrict will tend to kind of hoard food um, and not even realize they're doing it. and it's really interesting behavior actually because it's they don't just hoard food they'll often hoard other kind of things like you know like I don't know like loo roll or like plastic bags or kind of like other things that you might use around the home but yeah, there's definitely something about if you um yeah, if you've got disordered eating that you um you you want to kind of feel safe, you want to feel a sense of control and hoarding food can become part of that and definitely saw that more in the pandemic. Yeah, you can imagine it as well because of the the grocery stores not having uh the full stock. So it's like, you know, society is telling you, oh, you need to stock up, but I guess then if it lasts longer than when uh stock supplies are low, that's when you really need to reflect and, and see do you need extra help. Um, just the last one then. So, uh, what are your three best tips to improve our relationship with food? So we think, uh, okay, I'm not really happy with my relationship with food. I kind of have some black and white foods or forbidden foods. You've given a lot already. Is there any, any more tips you could think of? Sure. I mean, I suppose the tips I haven't mentioned, I mean, I think one thing as well is like becoming much more aware of your thoughts. Um, you know, we have 60,000 thoughts a day. A lot of those thoughts are repetitive. If you're having a lot of thoughts like um, I mustn't eat that because it's going to make me become really overweight or um, things like I'm a greedy pig if I'm eating that food. You know, a lot of those thoughts can be really unhelpful, really destructive, and then it can actually make eating disorder behaviors worse. So again, it's like beginning to like step back and, you know, have a bit more awareness and sort of think about your sort of thinking a bit more. Um, and yeah, and then I think, I mean, I think I, I kind of want to repeat some of the earlier things really, because I think like the regular eating, stabilizing blood sugar, I think that's almost like one of my top tips really. Um, and then the emotional eating as well. So starting to tune in much more and like starting to like pause and reflect and get more in tune with your emotions. I think just really, really important because of when you're very dissociated from your body, when you're very dissociated from how you feel, um, it's quite hard to have a healthy relationship with food because of um, you know, you're not you're not really tuning in to your kind of hunger, your fullness, what you're really needing, and you're often then using food as the shortcut to soothe, to comfort, to control. When actually there could be lots of other things that you could be doing instead, which are actually more going to meet your needs and um, more correctly, I guess, more helpfully, rather than like turning to food as the kind of first thing. Um, and I guess just to say with that as well, it's not that all emotional eating is wrong. You know, as human beings, we don't just eat for function. Uh, emotional eating is part of life, but you don't want it to be your like one strategy that you always rely on to soothe your emotions. You want to feel like you've got about 10 different strategies and food is one of them. Yeah, have multiple coping strategies. Yeah. Um, and the, I just remember a quote from uh, the psychologist Jordan Peterson. So he said uh, for depression, you know, or I think anxiety as well. It's like, you know, consider eating a meal because your blood sugar actually might be low. So I know that's like a different condition altogether, but you'd be surprised how uh, if you have that kind of binge strict uh, approach um, or even fasting, you know, you might actually just need a meal and you're just depriving yourself. But um, I'm going outside of my scope of practice here. This is, that's definitely, you know, something that you would be advising people on. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's so much like the fundamentals, isn't it? Of like, we often overlook just things like um, getting enough sleep, staying hydrated, making sure we're eating regularly. And just those kind of like building blocks of self-care can have huge benefits for your mental health. 
Um, and we just often forget that really. And I know it's all very well to say it here because it sounds so simple, but when you get in a really low place, sometimes it can be really hard to implement those things. But I always think as well, just baby steps, isn't it? Because it's the classic thing of we like, we overestimate what we can achieve in the next couple of months. And we massively underestimate what we can achieve when we think long-term. So I'm always saying to people as well, you know, like just embrace the baby steps, really go for underwhelming steps, really. Because then it's sustainable and you know you're going to get momentum and then you're actually going to produce some change over time that's all going to add up yeah absolutely i remember a story i heard about a uh, a writer who was writing for uh, a fitness uh, magazine and his his january you know the kind of the peak time in the fitness calendar his january article was uh, this year instead of trying to lose all the weight in one month why not try and just weigh one pound less uh than you do now so like you know in 12 months just lose a pound just very sustainable and because that wasn't uh, you know sexy enough or wasn't sensational enough it, it didn't get to print like it didn't get to magazine but it's like you know how often do people yo-yo diet versus how often do people lose one pound uh you know a year or just make those baby steps and you kind of have to get excited about the boring stuff almost you know because the boring stuff works really yeah, no, it's true, isn't it? It's all those little things, isn't it? And I think we all had that kind of fantasy sometimes about this one thing that's going to change our life overnight, but it's not really what works, is it? It's yeah. all the little things that add up. Yeah, and you wouldn't appreciate it if it happened uh, overnight. You, you wouldn't have put the work in or you wouldn't have had the highs and lows and stuff. So yeah, you definitely want sustainable and lasting change to take time, even though it's not what society tells us sometimes. Um, so Harry, that's it. Uh, thank you very, very much for your time and your insights. It was amazing. Um, do you have kind of any like services or uh, anything upcoming you want to tell people about or, you know, uh, any projects you're working on? Sure. Well, I, I guess I'd just say like, you know, do follow me on Instagram. I'm at the eating disorder therapist underscores between the words. Um, and then um, the eating disorder therapist podcast as well. You know, do come and listen to the eating disorder therapist podcast. And, um, and I've got a book club as a sort of an offshoot from that as well at the moment. So we read like a book a month. And um, so you get um, like you like pay like five pounds, like seven US dollars a month. And then you get like four additional podcast episodes. And, um, you know, um, and then we kind of read a book. So it's like a, an opportunity for like extra support and encouragement um, on your healing journey. Brilliant. That's a great idea um and i'll be sure to, to check out the podcast didn't actually know you had one but i i've seen your your content uh on instagram which is is really good um so thanks very much harry for your time um and maybe we will be on again soon for uh part two yeah no lovely <laughs> okay thanks for having me ross